Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I am thrilled to bring on someone I got to meet in New York, but who's really and thoroughly California, I believe. <laughs> we have on Lauren Patz from Redwood Empire. Welcome. Thank you. I don't know whether to be overjoyed or offended by that introduction. No, no, that's no, no, that's <laughs> it's it was positive for sure. For as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, she's not going to take that well but that's it's okay well i have had the opportunity to do uh some traveling this year obviously i was in new york when we met and then uh in a few other places and uh every once in a while when i'm out with friends <clears throat> they'll mention I'll, I'll bring something up or i'll comment on something and then i'll get the reply your california is showing and i'm like that's fair like <laughs> fair enough i get it i get it it's all good we, we've all got i, I get the you know you're a new york elitist kind of thing all the time when i'm traveling so it's all good but in your case i mean it well because <laughs> you you are literally from california <laughs> um you know from from napa from norcal um and that's not me doing creepy digging that's me just listening to other podcasts and such um and the so that's really where i want to start is norcal and okay. the story of there, because your kind of whiskey journey or spirits journey started at Spirit Works and not, right. and not Redwood Empire. So um, I just want to take a little time to talk about your experience at Spirit Works. <laughs> okay, for sure. I mean, I think the road to Spirit Works was actually fairly long in and of itself, but <clears throat> essentially what happened was I was working at a chocolate factory in San Francisco at the time. And um, my role there really was to um, give guided presentations of tastings of pairings of chocolate and fun things like beer and wine and cheese. And of course, that included spirits as well. And I really enjoyed uh, learning how to taste spirits, um, drinking them with other people, kind of having that opportunity to discuss flavor profiles and uh, have a whole new world opened up to me um, through that through that job and the responsibilities that I had there. And so when I decided I was ready to move out of San Francisco, <laughs> because <laughs> at the core, I am more uh, kind of like a, a country girl in that I like, you know, the outdoors and being surrounded by agriculture, obviously, um, Northern California and the area that I'm at from specifically Napa Valley and Sonoma are known for wine and grape growing. So there's a good um, agricultural presence here for certain. Um, I was ready to move out and I found a posting for a distillery tasting, tasting room manager, but there was no indication of what the company's name was. It was actually quite mysterious. Um, at the time, my aunt lived in the same town that Spiritworks was in, which is Sebastopol, California. And um, she had described to me kind of this new <clears throat> building co-op shared workspace type uh, building that they were putting in called the Barlow. And so through some sleuthing and some snooping, I discovered that there was a distillery that was going to be going in there called Spiritworks Distillery. So when I wrote my letter of um, kind of like just introducing myself with along with my resume, I... Um, 
I started it with like dear spirit works. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, this is either going to be a home run or a swing and a miss because it could be them. It could not be them. And, uh, luckily it was. And, um, so after that, you know, obviously a couple of rounds of interviewing and I was hired in 2013, uh, to be their tasting room manager, uh, fairly quickly, I started having responsibilities on the distillery floor. And, um, fairly soon after that, I was head of production and then head distiller. And I was with them for years. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was an incredible experience. Um, you know, a completely grain to glass, uh, production facility, um, a beautiful Carl still, it was, um, such a pleasure to learn to distill on an incredible piece of equipment like that. And, um, I just felt like it really was a uh, perfect timing and uh, a perfect partnership, um, for what we both needed at the time. And uh, so I'm very grateful for my experience there. I learned an incredible amount, had a lot of opportunities um, in our industry, both for doing presenting and, you know, uh, conferences and, and um, judging, spirit judging, and uh, I'll forever, you know, be thankful for those times. Um, but I was kind of ready to, to continue to grow and to kind of expand my skill set and, um, Redwood Empire is in fact less than 10 minutes away from Spiritworks Distillery. So I was very familiar with them, with their production team, with uh, Jeff Duckhorn, who is the master distiller there. He and I um, pretty much started distilling, you know, similar times, obviously very uh, different <clears throat> business plans and models and production um, situations, but uh, had always had like a really positive and cordial and, um, you know, great working relationship. And so I left Spiritworks and he reached out and asked if I wanted to come work at Redwood Empire. And, um, I thought, Oh, I don't have to move. I don't have to <laughs> uproot myself and my dog and, uh, leave my family. And, uh, and so it worked out really lovely. Yeah. And the, I have to ask, I mean, when you started and this is going to the very beginning of the story, but, uh, when you were working in the, the chocolate store yeah, um, and doing uh, pairings and such, did you ever get tired of chocolate? No, absolutely not. I gained about okay. 50 pounds, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was actually a real chocolate factory. It was on the Embarcadero, which is right uh, on the bay uh, in San Francisco. And uh, it was right next to the Exploratorium, which was also very cool, which is like this interactive science experience uh, type place. Um, but no, in fact, I smelled so thickly of brownie everywhere that I went that people, I, I kid you not I wouldn't say they followed me around when I went to the store but they definitely would like their faces would follow me as if you know following their nose because I smelled so strongly of like brownies and chocolate and um they were uh well known as Cho Chocolate was the name of the company they were well known for um making baker's chocolate so like uh discs for um you know commercial bakers and things and so we often got bags of those and I exploded uh with uh, <laughs> with my baking um at that time I made the absolute best chocolate pecan pie I think I've ever I mean experienced in my life it was so good so 
I have a lot of fond memories. Many of my family members are saddened that I no longer work at a chocolate factory, <laughs> but uh, I try to ease some of that suffering uh, with uh, with giving them whiskey. So I think it's an even trade on that one. I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> so uh, of course we're gonna devote most of the episode to to Redwood Empire. Um, the last thing I want to mention, just with Spare Works, and the reason that I wanted to bring it up was because. I hadn't heard of Spirit Works. And granted, like there's 2,000, nearly 3,000 distilleries in the US right now. So one can't be expected to know all. Um, but I hadn't heard about them. And then in very short order, I heard a lot about them. And first was meeting you a couple months ago um, when Redwood Empire, I think that was the, was that the cast strength launch or the bottle and bond launch? Oh, we had all of them. I brought all the special goodies for you guys, but uh, I think it was kind of more of the bottled and bond than it was the cask strain since those were going to be coming out first. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, so it was that. And then just two, three days later, I was in travel bar and I met um, Nora and Adam from Lost Lantern. And shortly thereafter, I was trying the spirit work single cast they did that was the rye finished in slow gin mm-hmm. so uh so it was a lot all at once i got to taste slow gin for the first time indirectly i guess yeah um, spirit yeah, works makes the best slow gin in the united states i 100 believe that <laughs> i i was told specifically to get the reserve like the barrel reserve one yeah for so. sure I made a Christmas right. goose in that one year. I baked my Christmas goose in Barrel Reserve Slow Gin and it was out of this world. <laughs> An expensive meal to be sure <laughs> if you were buying the bottle and buying the goose, but absolutely worth it. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I started working. Uh, one of the things that really drew me to Spirit Works was Slow Gin. I lived in Japan for uh, several years and um, I love Umeshu, which is another plum liqueur. And um, so when I was just kind of figuring out myself in the world of spirits, I was like, oh, Slow Gin, it's kind of like Umeshu. It is not at all like Umeshu, but the concept behind it is similar. <laughs> and um, such a pleasure to make. I mean, liqueurs in general are a struggle specifically for craft producers because they require a lot of um, finessing on the proofing side and making sure that you really um, understand what you're doing when you're adding sugar to the equation and how difficult it can make things but can be incredibly rewarding uh, when you do it well and get the right balance of all the different ingredients so I yeah I mean I think that 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 slogan is something incredibly special so I'm I'm still looking for some of it. It's a little hard to find out here in New York, but I I will find it one way or another. Um, I'll get it next time I'm in California. So the that leads into the the next part of this, which was when we met in Brooklyn. We ended up talking for a long time, and I have a feeling the uh, you know Elliot and the brand reps who were there were like, she should really be talking to other people. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but we really got into a lot of different topics. And one of them was that you had lived in Japan and you speak fluent Japanese at that. 
I mean, it's, it's deteriorated somewhat, but I, at the time certainly spoke fluent Japanese and my Japanese is still pretty good, but it's been almost 10, I mean, it's been 10 years, over 10 years since I lived there. And so sure, I still <clears throat> consume a certain amount of media so that I can uh, keep my uh, listening skills at least up to par. Um, but I do wish I had more opportunities to speak it for sure. It's 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 one of those it's one of my top three languages that I would love to learn if I, I'm just not good at learning languages, but it's one of my top three. <laughs> Have you learned to. any words? Do you know uh, any Japanese words? Uh, no, the only only a couple and they're all whiskey related or wood related in some way. <laughs> what would be like your number one phrase that you want to know how to say? Oh, God, I don't even know. And it's not even like I would go towards something dirty or crass right away it's sure uh, i i don't i don't even know um you don't have to respond we could that can be <laughs> uh, well one one could be interesting which is um what distillery does this come from um oh actually i'm not sure <laughs> i know the japanese word for distillery yikes that's embarrassing but i could tell you the rest of it <laughs> <laughs> I'll look that up and get back to you. But I would, I probably, I'm, I'm sure they would probably know the word distillery if you said it in English anyway. But, um, but how, yeah, oh, there's got to be a Japanese word for it. I'm not sure. I mean, it's a foreign thing, so it could be in katakana. Anyway, not to totally derail the conversation, but no, no, no. That these are the kinds of tangents that that happen on the show all the time, and they're great. They're the best tangents. So, um, I'm I'm especially curious because I have. Uh, I have an Impex collection, 17-year-old Japanese whiskey that I have no idea where it's from. Oh. <laughs> and and they've they've kept it secret. And like I had one question to ask. I was not necessarily just to you, just to the Japanese whiskey industry in general. I'm like, I want to know where this is from. I guess you could say, so like, cool. if you want to say that, you say, Kore wa doko kara kimashita ka. So it's like this thing, where is it from? Where has it come from? <laughs> So korewa uh, is like this thing, and then doko is like where, kara is like from, and then kimashitaka is like past tense come, and then ka is a question mark. So I, I, that would be my recommendation. <laughs> so memorize that, and then <laughs> and then ask. Let's start cold calling the distilleries and just start yeah. out with you know, hello, and right into the phrase and see what they say. <laughs> well, you'd have to show it to them because you're like, it's like pointing at something. Fair, fair. Uh, so, you know, during your time in, in Japan, were you much of a spirits drinker or whiskey drinker? You know, I grew up in a wine family. Um, so I've always been around alcohol, but certainly not, you know, not significantly spirits. So when I was in Japan, it's really kind of where I started drinking spirits but not whiskey. Um, I was drinking shochu pretty exclusively. Um, not too much sake, but I was very, I was living in very rural Japan. There was probably like maybe 30 people in the town that I was living in. There was one bar um, and uh, I'd say no, no real young people lived there because the majority of them had moved to the cities and then, you know, eventually would probably move back with families. But for the most part, there really wasn't anyone under the age of 40. 
in the town. So if you went to the bar, it was all of these, you know, older Japanese men um, sitting around smoking, drinking, uh, very difficult to understand <laughs> in terms of the way that the way that they were speaking Japanese also very rurally. So like uh, heavily accented as well. And um, we would sit around and drink uh, oolong highs, which to this day is probably one of my favorite drinks. So that's oolong tea and uh, shochu. So they always described it as being like, oh, well, you never get uh, you never get hung over uh, if you drink these because it's like hydrating you at the same time as you're uh, as you're drinking. And um, there's also this drinking culture in Japan where you should never have an empty glass and you should never be pouring yourself a glass. So not only are you not allowed to finish drinking, you're also not allowed to control the amount that's in your own cup. So it essentially ensures that you will imbibe likely more than you than what you might have chosen for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> It's, a, it's the opposite of the bartender avoiding your eye when you've had a few too many. Right, basically. exactly. No, the goal there really is to have you consume as much as possible. I mean, there are plenty of uh, occasions where you just all fall asleep at a bar like that because it's a block away from your house and you know everybody. Um, but uh, so there was that. And then also there was only one restaurant in the town that I was living in. And um, uh, incredible karage, which is Japanese fried chicken, essentially. But also he made all of his own in-house uh, umeshu, and, uh, which I mentioned is plum liqueur, which I loved. I thought he made incredible umeshu. So starting off with a base of shochu and then pretty much just macerating and soaking um, plums inside of it. And uh, <clears throat> when I left the town, when I left my time there, um, the owner of the restaurant gave me a couple of bottles to take home with me. And that was like the greatest gift. And uh, I, I parsed it out so uh, small over the years. And um, I finally finished the last of it, I think a year or two ago. Oh, so yeah I, I do do like me some umeshu uh umeshu excuse me and uh also surprising people with umeboshi mm. because they're not quite expecting it and <laughs> it's always it's always a little fun um so uh for those listening you're probably like what the hell is that um <laughs> so very <laughs> sour plums right very sour um, you can find them in most uh, Japanese or or East Asian um, grocery stores around here, but it, they're they're, usually, you still have to be ready for them. They're usually treated though; those are like the the ones that have been like semi pickled usually, and uh, they're mm -hmm. kind of like salty and pickly, and they go on top of rice typically as what they find in stores mm -hmm. if it's in a jar. And then um, there's other types of plums for sure, but uh, but I love umeboshi. I love natto. That's another big thing that uh, Japanese people love to give foreigners, which is fermented soybeans. It kind of looks like snot and it's hard to eat and it has a very unique flavor, but they love watching watching people who haven't had it before eat it because they're just like waiting for your facial uh, reaction to it for sure. I Yes, I I've tried it. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I, props to you that that you can that you enjoy it. I can't do it. I just I'm not a big fermented flavor person. I just 
unless basically unless it's fermented into liquor i don't really like it i was gonna but, say i was like you probably consume more fermented product than most people <laughs> yeah so for fermented liquid fine fermented foods eh, not so much basically a pickle is about as far as i'll go and that's mm -hmm. but anyway um so th there's a lot that i want to ask you about um so we're gonna rush through a little bit but bear with me um so now moving forward to your time at redwood empire so Jeff, Tuck, Jeff Duckhorn, excuse me, is master distiller, brings you on as the head distiller to uh, distill. And I don't know where I was going to go with that, to distill. And when you initially came over to Redwood Empire, what was your, uh, you know, what was the biggest change that you had to consider? The biggest change was the still. Um, you know, coming from, you know, a pot, a hybrid pot column still to a continuous column still is very different. It's very different in process. It's very different in operations and, um, the flow of the day, it looks very different. And so that was one of the aspects that was, um, as equally intriguing as it was challenging. Um, I think that having such a strong understanding of distillation on a you know, <clears throat> scientific level, both through the physics and the chemistry of what's going on really helped, um, you know, be able to pick up the, the column distillation or the continuous column distillation more readily, but it's certainly different than, uh, than working on a pot still. Absolutely. No doubt about it. So that was a big change. Uh, the other big change was just the incredible library of whiskey that they had. Um, right now we have about 16,000 uh, barrels, um, on hand, <clears throat> not necessarily all at the, at our facility, but, um, in our ownership, that's the, the amount that we have. And that's no small amount. I mean, that is very different than what it was like at Spearworks where we were making maybe 20 barrels of whiskey a year. Um, it's just a completely different level of volume for sure. And, um, and so having access to that and the ability to really exercise some blending chops has been really fun for me. Um, you know, sometimes when you are in the, you know, craft scene, you really don't have the, um, inventory to do blending. You kind of do single barrels, which I love. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with single barrels, but it is a different skill set. It is something that's really fun as a distiller to kind of see, um, that aspect of our industry, which is a huge part of, uh, of a lot of the products that are out, uh, in the market. So, you know, being able to taste through a couple hundred barrels or so, certainly for the bottled and bond projects that we take on, that's that's a big part of that process is um, smelling through first and, you know, doing the initial elimination via nosing uh, and then tasting through those and um, compiling the best composition we, we possibly can. And uh, I always say that the thing that I've found about blending is always to have a very clear understanding and vision of what you want to achieve. 
Um, some people, uh, I think might approach it a little bit more organically. They're just kind of like pulling different things out of, um, out of cupboards and putting them together and voila, they've made a masterpiece. That's not really my style. I am someone who has, you know, that whole visualization, uh, <laughs> aspect to my personality. So I usually have like a really strong vision, uh, flavor profile, mouthfeel, um, you know, finish that. I want to achieve. And then, um, and then Jeff and I work together to try and get there. I mean, obviously we have different visions, um, but we kind of blend those together and, uh, and then create something together. So, uh, that was really fun for me. It was one of the first projects that I took on when I started with them, um, in 2021 at the very beginning. So I haven't even been with them for two years yet, but, um, it was such a great way to familiarize myself with our house style of distillation and um, to it was a great way to feel like I was contributing to that initial release of Bottled and Bond. Um, and then we just had our second release. Uh, I believe it's out in market now. It's definitely out of the distillery and, uh, and I believe in various warehouses across the United States. And so I'm sure it's starting to trickle its way out the door uh, to consumers as well. But um, we worked really hard on that. And uh, I think both are delicious, but I, I'm really excited about this, uh, this next batch that's out, specifically the rye, because it is a four grain rye. And I, I, I'd say rye is probably my favorite type of American whiskey for sure. So it's always fun when you are working on things that you really feel very, very strongly and passionate and um, excited about. Sure. You know, when we met, uh, we were talking about the bottle and the bond. We were talking about the cast strength. As you said, you brought all the goodies. So mm -hmm. got to try through them. And um, something that you, uh, you actually said on another podcast, the Modern Bar Cart, one that I thought was very pertinent for what you just said was, quote, if it's not 90 proof, it's not worth drinking. <laughs> now, I know that's, I'm not going to hold you to that strictly because. No, I, be I stand by that. <laughs> but, okay, fair, I mean, fair for whiskey, for sure. I mean, other things yeah. I get a little bit more leeway for, but for me, for whiskey, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, we're, we're both proof hounds. We like the higher proof stuff. It's. You know, don't have to blow out the palate, but it's got to give a little kick, got to feel something when you drink it. I, I like higher proof because it allows me another level of control. Um, I, every distiller I've ever met is on some, in some way, a control freak, <laughs> like likes to be calling the shots, likes to make all the decisions. I think part of it comes from the necessity to be making all the decisions all the time. And so you have to have that kind of strong belief that what you're doing is the right thing. Otherwise you die of crippling anxiety that you are making the bad choices. <laughs> but um, that's part of the reason why I really love higher proof spirits is because I get to control how I'm drinking it. Do I want it in a cocktail? Do I want it, you know, with ice on the side? Um, you know, do I want to drink it straight? I really appreciate being involved uh, in the process of drinking it instead of being given something, uh, and just having it be placed in front of me, that's far too close to someone telling me what to do. And I, that's, that never works well for me. <laughs> there. Uh, so with, with that in mind, I mean, I want to jump back to something you just said that this new batch of bottle and bond, particularly the rye is going to be a four grain rye. 
Uh, so the first batch was a uh, three grain. Yes. Right. No corn. <clears throat> no corn. Yeah. Right. So, um, so the, the other four grain whiskey that you normally put out, because I know there are some special releases and such, is the uh, one of the core. It's a pipe dream. Yes. It's the corn, the rye, malted barley, and and a tiny bit of wheat. Um, so I know this. The decision to make this batch of four grain was before you joined Red Wind Empire, but you know, still, let's let's walk through why why make a three grain and then a four grain. You know, why do both? I think it. I think it's a couple of different reasons, as there always should be. You know, it should never just be one thing that's uh, guiding your your way. Um, partially, it is due to the uh, way that we formulate our products, which is through blending. I mean, yes, of course, we're doing distillation, but we're also, uh, for those three core skews, bringing on distillate from other distilleries and doing all the blending in-house. So having an incredible variety of mash bill, of cooperage, of uh, locational aging um, leads to just like some incredible diversity of expression for the finished product. And that diversity really strengthens our overall uh, opportunity to blend uh, and do some fun, th fun things there, uh, create depth of flavor, uh, unique flavor profiles, and um, really kind of creating a, a harmony there. So I think it really strengthens one of the kind of core aspects of what they started this company with, which was um, having those core skews, the Pipe Dream, the Emerald Giant, and the Lost Monarch be blends of purchased and produced whiskey. And so we are having that stamp of ownership through that blending process, obviously including our own product as well. Um, and so really looking for uh, an incredible breadth of whiskey to kind of pull from when we're putting those blends together. So I think that's part of it. The second part of it is it's just more fun that way. Um, <laughs> you, in distillation, if you have the same mash bill uh, every single time, you know, it is a repetitive process. I mean, you are fermenting, you're looking for consistency. And so there is some expectation of repetition when it comes to uh, what we do on the floor because we are really open to blending and because we're really uh, able to round out edges that, um, that might be too extreme, we have the opportunity to really play around with what our mash bills are. So I mentioned that I'm still, you know, relatively new to the team, but starting next year, we're going to drastically change what our mash bills are. We will absolutely keep uh, our consistent mash bill for our produced product. <clears throat> Uh, an element of that, but we are going to be uh, uh, including um, another uh, kind of core mash bill for the bourbon and for the rye um, to enhance that diversity, both for bottled and bond, but also for uh, when we do uh, and, and inevitably uh, inch up in percentage for our own product uh, in the core SKUs as well. So in, in some ways it to me, this mirrors uh, the really with the same process that that Bardstown Bourbon Company is going with, where sure. they started with the the sourcing and proved their skill at blending, mm -hmm. which I think Redwood has done as well. And slowly but surely, they're adding in their own distillate. And one of the things that you have that anyone who's following that process, whether they're starting that way or whether they start with their own distillate, is 
uh, discovering, as you put it earlier, the house style. Mm -hmm. uh, so how would you describe the house style of Redwood? Well, luckily, it's very in line with what my <laughs> preferences and approach are towards uh, whiskey specifically, which is a much softer uh, approach. It tends to be a little bit more subtle. It has an incredible amount of complexity, but it isn't slapping you upside the face with it. And I think that there is no better spirit that represents this from us than our rye. I think our rye is very different than a lot of the other rye that's out there, both the Emerald Giant and the Rocket Top and our cask strength. I think they all trend into this uh, kind of opposite end of the spectrum from what a lot of the rye out there, um, from what I've experienced is, which is, um, a much more intense rye, very highly extracted, uh, borderline astringent, aggressive on the palate. Um, it's much more about sensation <laughs> than, uh, than maybe uh, it is about flavor. And that's the opposite of what we're doing. We still want to preserve kind of that spicy, savory rye flavor, but we want to temper uh, some of that astringency, some of that harshness uh, with a rounder mouthfeel uh, and with a, a very kind of a much gentler palate. So it's a more of an invitation than, uh, than anything. We really want to get people excited uh, about the rye. And um, I, I just, I feel like people, maybe have been abused by rye in the past <laughs> or have had a bad experience with it. And so I just want them to know that there are, you know, as with any type of spirit, there are alternatives out there for every, every palette, every um, preference. So I think that's one of the big things is that we really go for this um, very, very um, intense, very rich, but not overwhelming and not um, I, you know, everyone hates this word, but like not hot, right? Like the goal is, uh, that it will sit on your palate and, um, you want that to happen. You don't want to swallow it as quickly as you possibly can. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard both you and, and Jeff separately, uh, talk about how mouthfeel is so important to yeah. what you're trying to achieve. Uh, and I'm, the biggest question I have around that is, I guess, when you went from the pot still to a continuous column still and a, uh, you know, a 20 footer at that, uh, that's a pretty big shift. And for, for me, at least, and this is my own bias, I usually think of a pot still whiskey as having a little bit more body, um, also maybe a little spicier, a little hotter, but usually having a little bit more mouthfeel. So how do you achieve that mouth? Because I, I agree. I think that Redwood Empire does have that, sm not smoothness, almost said that, softness um, <laughs> on the palate where it can sit and you can enjoy it for a little bit. Um, so how do you manage to do that with a column still, or is that even an issue? I think uh, people put a lot of weight on the distillate, you know, in terms of how the product is going to turn out. And I'm not arguing that it isn't a significant factor. I'm arguing that it isn't the only factor. Um, you know, 70% of a whiskey's flavor come out of that barrel. And so your maturation program, your barrel program, hugely impact uh, how it's going to be coming out um, 
of, uh, of barrel and into bottle. So distillation is absolutely a key ingredient. I mean, you don't want to be making horrible product. It's not like it can magically change in barrel. Although I'm sure there are people who would argue with me that that is what happens. <laughs> but um, I do find that the still that we have, which is a head frame still currently, and then we will be bringing on a Vendome in the next year, uh, it's mostly built, but <clears throat> we're going to be building out a new facility. So it's just kind of getting the timing right on that. But the head frame still that we have creates very clean product, um, which, you know, I understand can come across uh, having like a lack of uh, texture to it because you're, you know, it might be um, removing uh, certain elements um, that you would include or would just accidentally be included um, via pot distillation. But I think it does an incredible job of preserving um, flavor via distillation. That being said, I really wanted to focus on our flavor development for our aging program. So part of it is the fact of our region being in Northern California and pretty much next to the coast. I mean, we're about 30 minutes away from the from the ocean, from the Pacific Ocean. Um, and of course, you know, being in the Redwoods, um, which is where we get our name from, Redwood Empire. Uh, we have a much more temperate climate here. And so you're not experiencing and the barrels aren't experiencing these crazy um, shifts in temperature and humidity. Um, it's a much uh, softer aging process here. And I think that really does factor into the softness of the whiskey when it's coming out. Um, it's also why we allow our bottled and bond to be in a barrel an extra year because we really want to get to the, to the point, to the flavor uh, profile that we're looking to achieve. And so because it is a little bit slower in California than say, um, I mean, certainly different results than you would find in Texas or even in uh, Kentucky or some of the other places that are um, starting to grow as, as whiskey regions or have been for their whole entire existence. Um, <laughs> I think it is a much softer aging process and it does allow for a slightly softer uh, expression coming out of the barrel and, uh, and on the palate as well. I mean, we're not shying away from rye as an ingredient in any shape or form. I mean, we're going from 90 to 86 percent on the majority, I mean, like of rye in our mash bills, there's some, I I've started doing some like 51% rise, uh, with triticalian wheat just, but those are going to be for blending. Those are very unlikely to be single barrel offerings. I mean, maybe they will be, I'm sure somebody would be like, Oh, that's exactly what I want, <laughs> but uh, they're really there to add an element of blending, um, more than they are for anything else. But, um, we're deep in that rye area. So um, to be able to kind of achieve this more gentle rye with that high of a rye in your mash bill, I think is, is pretty incredible. And I think it is likely due to the um, partially to the climate that we're in when we're aging. Um, the other is ensuring that we have a toast and a char on our barrels. So toasting, uh, these are both um, 
treatments on barrels, pretty common treatments uh, for whiskey. And um, so toasting is a kind of slow and low heat treatment. Um, it allows for deeper penetration into the wood and better extraction of um, whatever it's extracting. It kind of depends on what your barrel entry proof is. Uh, and then also um, making sure that our char level is accurate. We're at char three, which um, a lot of distilleries use um, as well. There's about four chars. And then of course your barrel entry proof, we do a slightly lower barrel entry proof. Sugar is more soluble in water and tannins are more soluble in, um, ethanol. So by putting in at a slightly lower barrel entry proof, <clears throat> the idea is that you would be extracting more of the sugar, uh, than the, uh, than the tannin. Do you use a consistent barrel entry proof across products or do you vary with Again, this is why I love having a blending program. No, <laughs> we do have, you know, I'd say industry standard is between 110 and 120. And um, we don't do anything above 115. So uh, that's uh, the highest that we would do into barrel. And then um, I wouldn't say that we regularly go below 110, but I, you know, we've done like, you know, 106. 10, you know, 108. Um, it partially depends on uh, making sure it fits into the amount of barrels that we have, but not entirely. And um, so that's kind of the range that we live in. And I think barrel entry proof is like one of the most important decisions that distillers are making for uh, when they are resting. Uh, for their whiskey long-term. And um, again, just so thankful that we have the opportunity to kind of play around with those things. So um, we did a blending exercise with our sales team. We had our first national sales meeting in a very long time due to pandemic. And it had been years since, you know, certain people had seen each other. So uh, they came and visited the distillery and we did a whole blending um, projects. I wanted them to understand and to see how special having access to this much variety truly is. Um, and, uh, and I think that it was, it was something that they really enjoyed and, and really resonated with them. So. I mean, I, I'm in full agreement. The, I mean, there was a lot that was just said, so we're, I, I want to make sure to hit the, the you disagreed I mean, with everything, right? Group. Everything that I, I said was right. I mean, <laughs> it really, it, it was, I mean, I, there's nothing to argue with on that. I, I, of course, it just brings up more questions, but that's, that's good. Um, before we dive a little bit into the climate, that uh, new Vendome still at, um, is it meant to kind of just add to capacity? Is it going to mirror what you have right now? It's going to 4X our capacity. So it's going to multiply wow. your okay. current capacity by four times the amount. Yeah. Um, that kind of ties into what our, you know, goals are as a, you know, for sales, but also for, uh, the giving us the opportunity to start to eat away at the percentage of our current make in, um, those three core SKUs. We're at about 15% right now, uh, in the pipe dream, Emerald Giant and Lost Monarch. And the rest is a blend of, a couple of other distilleries. It's not just coming from one place. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I think 
I like having it that way because I like having the, <laughs> I like having it, um, have that layer of complexity and depth, but, um, I really believe in the products that we're making and the distillate that we're making. I, I think that our bottled and bond really proves that we know what we're doing when it comes to distilling. That can be a really rough transition for a lot of distilleries when they start making it you know, more about their product than um, about uh, blended product or purchased and blended product. And um, I think we've had an incredible response with the bottled and bond. And um, I really think that we have what it takes to make it 100% our stuff too. You know, so uh, as long as we keep up the diversity of what we're making uh, in order to allow for that complexity to be maintained uh, through that transition. You're right. The bottled and bond has become, in some ways, it's become less important as a, as a legal term. You know, all warehouses are bonded now. Right. The seasonality is uh, a little bit couched because of just modern farming techniques and such, but it still has such weight in the community, in the whiskey drinker community and in the lexicon um, because it's, you know, it's the first consumer protection act. It's all about whiskey and, um, it is really a marker for distilleries when they come out with their own distillate, um, I can name any, any number of them. And they've really gone two routes. You know, one is the route that Redwood has taken, which is to on for most products, you know, slowly blend up the percentage of their own uh, distillate and then also produce a bottle and bond when it's, when it's ready and use uh, to your point, you know, it's five years old as opposed to the requisite four. So it's when it's ready, not necessarily when it's time. Right. Um, so that's that's one route. And then the other route is for some distilleries, they're able to just hold everything until they create the bottle and bond. And that's their first product. Um, you know, thinking of like a wilderness trail or I think New Riff also did that. Um, but you kind of have some pretty solid capital to be able to hold off for that long. Certainly solid capital, capital, capital. And also... A, a significant risk. I mean, you haven't, the first toe that you're putting in the water is like, you know, if people don't like it, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, as a distiller, you have to be incredibly confident because <laughs> you really got to be able to believe, I mean, you're not going to know for a long time whether or not those decisions were right. And so uh, in order to sleep at night, you got to believe it. <laughs> it's true. Very true. But, uh, but yeah, um, it's, a, it's a real mark of, uh, it's a real rite of passage, specifically for craft distilleries to be able to put out a bottled in bond. I mean, it shows that you've survived that long as a distillery, <laughs> you know, four years yeah. is not insignificant when it comes to, you know, operational costs, um, particularly if you're putting down significant amounts of product. Um, but, uh, but it's a big deal. And I, you know, it's interesting. I think there's an assumption that bottled and bond is higher quality or better. That has not been my experience. Not all the time. It's not an automatic better. You know what I'm saying? It's right. like, it is a very specific type of product. And if you really want to know what a distillery has to offer, that's what they really have to offer is what's in their bottled and bond. So, uh, I really feel like that's where you can kind of make your judgment, whether or not they know what they're doing on the distillation side, more than just a, a blending side. Absolutely. I mean, you can, you can blend within a bottled and bond from as long as it's from the same season, but you're, 
you're limited to, as you said, how good the distill is to begin with, but also you're only limited to those six months. Yep. So it's not, you know, you can't pull from a really good year to try to mask something that's not so good from another year. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is a marker and it's something that catches people's eye, of course, as well, um, even outside the whiskey community. So with the five-year-old and now the second round of bottled and bond coming out, uh, will this be kind of a regular, a regular release in the sense that it's available year round, or will it be a regular, um, Annual. periodic release. It's yeah. going to be an annual release for the foreseeable future. That's what we've discussed. So it will each year we'll have a bottled and bond released. The blend will be different. Um, the, you know, mash bill or the grain composition, I guess is probably more accurate will be different, um, per, uh, per year. So it is really, it is one of those things that you could like have a vertical on and, uh, and have mm. some interesting tasting that way. So I'm making sure that I've got it <laughs> so that I've got a bottle of one, two, and then hopefully down the road. Um, cause it'll be really fun to see how the different blends kind of, um, showcase themselves and the distillate will be different, you know, as you gain more experience, I mean, things change, you make different decisions. Uh, so it'll be fun to see and can't wait to see. And, you know, I guess it's been probably two years since I started almost two years now. So, uh, you know, another three more years and I'll get to taste stuff that I was responsible for specifically. Um, but, um, yeah, part of that, uh, six month, uh, restriction is again, we've changed what our production schedule looks like to make sure that we have the variety in both, um, both uh, semesters, I guess, um, to uh, if we needed to choose the spring or the fall uh, and have the variety there. So we do a, a weeded bourbon, a high rye bourbon. Uh, and then when I started, we started doing similar things with rye as well. And then starting next year, we're going to be flip-flopping majority rye for majority wheat. That is heavily <laughs> influenced by me and my feelings about wheat. I I love, love, love wheat. Um, I love rye as well, but um, I think it'll be fun for us to increase the, the wheat component. I think it really melds well with our overall philosophy of this kind of slightly softer approach. Wheat to me is always very floral. It's very fruity, like stone fruity, apricot type situation. And so I'm excited to see how those things play uh, in the space that we've created with our products. And so with the higher wheat, is that going to be a higher weeded, weeded bourbon or a wheat whiskey that's multi-grain? I wish that we were making wheat whiskey. That's like, I, that's what I really want to be making is wheat whiskey, but I'm not sure we're quite ready for that yet. So, um, no, our typical recipe, uh, for our regular bourbon, our straight line bourbon is around 73% corn and 22% uh, rye. And then, um, you know, like five, 4% malted barley and wheat. So we're going to flip flop the wheat and the rye on that recipe and do about half and half of each of those. That's the plan right now. The plan I'm actually currently building out our schedule for next year, getting all of our raw materials in order, uh, and things like that for what it looks like in 2023. Gotcha. And I mean, you just alluded to this too, that you have a, uh, a particular penchant for dealing with unusual grains 
or less love grains that yes. you put in one one podcast. Um, so, I mean, no one I think can can accuse wheat of being a less loved grain. That we've got plenty of good to great and some not so great, but a lot of wheat weeded bourbons, even a couple of wheat whiskeys coming out now. But uh, triticale is something that not a lot of people are even going near. Yeah. Yeah. So, feed, so why? Probably what most people call it. Well, I can't lie. Uh, I was absolutely 100% inspired by dry fly. I had some of okay. their triticale early on in my career, and I was like, "What is this?" So, um, my my first recipe that I put together for Spiritworks was their bourbon. So, the very first um, recipe that I ever made and that we ever executed was uh, the bourbon at Spiritworks, and the second was triticale. So, I actually. <laughs> I'm drinking some Spiritworks Triticale right now, <laughs> um, uh, but I rarely open it. I only have a few bottles left. Um, this is an example of when sometimes you, you just want to have fun. So the proof on that first Triticale whiskey that we released was 99%. Uh, uh, or sorry, 99 proof, not 99%. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Uh, 99 proof. Um, because I was like really listening to like 99 problems, but a bleep isn't one, you know? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I just, I gotta do that. And so sometimes it's really fun to work at a, at a craft distillery when you can make decisions like that. And it's not like a, it's not a big thing. You can just do it and have fun with it and, uh, and just enjoy that aspect. So, so yeah, I'm drinking some of that right now. <laughs> Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. This month's focus, their October distillery dive, is distillery number five. This famous lowland distillery will show you something completely different, and you've probably never had before. This isn't your floral and fruity space side, but it's also not that smoky sometimes medicinal and maritime isla. It's truly unique and in a category and region all its own. The distillery dive bottlings were announced on October 11th, so you might still find some available. If not, keep an eye out. There are always more bottles coming from this distillery and others, and always new journeys to explore. There are also currently five fall bundles available, packaging multiple bottles together from sometimes the same and sometimes different distilleries into a discounted set for you to discover. Remember to use the promo code WRP for 20% off your annual membership, and you can visit the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society website to sign up and order via the link in the show notes. Glenallachie Whiskey is a true space cider whose full name means Valley of the Rocks in Gaelic. Led by master distiller Billy Walker, Glenallachie put out some of the most interesting single-cast bottlings in the entire region this year. This month, for November, we've got three releases to talk about. First up is the Glenallachie 2010 Cask 4635. This U.S. exclusive single cask is finished in a Napa Valley wine barrel for three years. This non-show filtered bottling rolls in at a hefty 59.9% ABV and comes with a hand-numbered bottle and display box. There are 306 700 milliliter bottles available, and again, exclusive only to the United States. The second release is cast 7666, barreled in 2009 and bottled in 2022. This 12-year single cask 
was finished in a Madeira Barrique for just about three years and carries a 59.2% ABV. This also comes with a hand-numbered gift box and bottle, and there are just 298 bottles available. The third bottle, and perhaps the most interesting one for me, is cask 3713. This 13-year single cask is finished in a sauterne barrel for three years and bottled at 58.2% ABV. I found recently I love sauterne finishes. It's an underused white wine, and I'm really excited to see what more companies do with it. This one is no exception. With just 291 bottles available, this one's going to go quickly, so grab yours before you miss out. You can check out more details about these U.S. exclusive bottlings through the links in the show notes, and talk to your local store to make sure you never miss out on the newest Glenallachie single barrels. If you need help finding these bottles in particular, shoot me an email. Happy to help you experience these incredible single cask offerings. Thank you again to Impex Beverages for being our presenting sponsor. And now, back to the show. Fitting, fitting. And that wasn't planned at all. So, uh, that works. So what? Let's let's back up a step and say, what is Triticale? Triticale is a hybrid grain. It is, um, depending on who you ask, it is a hybridization of wheat and rye, or it is a trit, a, a tri-hybridization of wheat, rye, and uh, barley. Um, it was essentially grown or <clears throat> developed in order to grow in more stressful environments like rye is, but to be more fruitful, more plentiful like wheat is. Um, so that was kind of the idea behind it. It is certainly not used, uh, for anything except for animal feed. There are some beers now that are being brewed with, uh, with triticale, but it's still fairly, it's just not really, it doesn't have a real place. I would say yet, uh, within the distilling community, there's certainly a few people who have been using it and some fun things, um, are being made with it. But I love triticale because uh, it is exactly both rye and wheat simultaneously. It's not, it doesn't taste like them together. It tastes like you're experiencing both separately at the same time. And uh, it's such a unique and uh, beautiful sensation that I, I really love that grain. And so um, particularly with rye, I really enjoy using it. it harmonizes well with rye um, because that's part of its uh, genetic makeup, but it does soften it just a, a bit. So um, last year we did uh, a week of um, high triticale rye and uh, next year we're going to be doing some more. And then the beginning of this year, uh, we started doing some bourbon with some triticale in it as well. Um, we've been playing around with smoked malt and peated malt and um, all of some fun stuff like that with that. So doing some peated rye, some peated bourbon. Um, again, we have the ability to do things like that because we can blend, you know, you know, if we are trying some stuff out that might be a little bit, I don't know intense or different, uh, we can, again, kind of round out some of those sharper edges by, uh, by blending it and create something very different and unique and, and hopefully palatable in that way. So, um, having the creativity, I mean, uh, distilling, particularly for craft distillation is that blend of art and science. I'm a very creative person. Um, 
And I think of my, I would get bored if I didn't have the opportunity to uh, influence in some way the flavor profiles that we were producing. And so Jeff has been very, um, very uh, open to um, kind of letting me play around uh, with what our mash bills look like and what the actual production of things look like. So yeah, my responsibilities are very much um, day-to-day distillery operations, anything coming in and out of the physical space, I would say, are kind of my responsibilities. And then, you know, he gets to do all the the big picture, long visionary, uh, advocating for us internally, uh, type of role for sure. He's certainly on the floor, but um, that is kind of more my responsibility. And before I forget, because I, I wanted to ask this question, where do you get the, uh, where are you using the peat from? Peat? Is that what the question was? Where are we using our peat from? Oh, yeah. 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 So where are you getting the peat and, and your smoke from? So all of the peat, and I'm not sure exactly where the smoke is coming from. It's coming through uh, Great Western Malt, which is kind of like a wholesaler. Uh, they make some of their own stuff, but I, I can't remember exactly which uh, malt house we were getting the smoked from, but uh, the peat is coming from the UK. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I know there's, um, you know, I'm, I'm finding more and more areas where there's peat and using local peat and all that. And um, of course the UK is kind of the gold standard for use for finding peat using it and, and that flavor that everyone's familiar with. Right. Uh, of course, though, I'm also curious what would happen if you used um, like a Pacific Northwest or even a NorCal peat instead. Sure. Why wouldn't you be? We're all curious about that. Who, who wants to yeah. take the monetary risk in finding that out? But um uh, we do have a local malt house that we buy a significant amount of malt from. So uh, Admiral Malting in Alameda, which is in the East Bay. So um, they're probably like uh, two hours, I guess, away from us. Um, they do a lot of floor malting there. I just put an order for them. We're going to get an order from them uh, in December. So we do order a lot of uh, locally malted um, malt. And they actually buy a significant amount of their grain from our grain supplier, which is um, Adam's Grain out of the Sacramento Valley. So uh, most of our grain comes from California, not all of it, but uh, like the uh, by far the majority of what we are uh, using is coming from California. Gotcha. So like, I just had to ask that question before I forgot, but jumping back to the triticale um, for a second. So I, that's the first I've heard that people are thinking it's also part barley as well, because the, the Latin name makes it seem like it's just the wheat and the rye. I also think that it's wheat and rye, but our grain supplier, who I've known my entire career and adore, uh, told me, and he has, you know, he worked for Anheuser-Busch, like he's a lot of experience. He's the one who told me that it's the three together. So I, you know, this is something that I don't know. I believed until he said that, that it was just wheat and rye. 
So, um, you know, something to look into and investigate. That's what I, that's one of the things I love about distilling in my job is like there, everything is a rabbit hole. You can go so deep in any one particular conversation, essentially one sentence, and you can kind of like go onto a, um, research mission that you'll lose yourself in for however many hours you allow yourself to, but he's the one who told me that it is uh, wheat and rye and malted bar or not malted barley, but barley. And, um, so, but I was shocked when I heard him say that, cause it was my understanding that it was also just wheat and rye as well. Cause it's like triticum and are like their, their name and, and Sakala. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what I always thought was that it was just the two of them, but he said it was the three. And I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I always thought it was something different than that. So that makes me wonder too, if there's any kind of, um, enzymatic activity you know if you were to to try to ferment it with or sorry if you were to try to mash it without adding any additional barley or any pitched enzymes if there would be any enzymatic activity from that little bit of barley dna in there i don't know i don't know, I don't know. That, that's an experiment as, I mean, as you said that that's an experiment for someone with with more financial resources and, like the commercial you know, distiller in me is like i would never try that <laughs> <laughs> the commercial distiller in me is like, no, I'm definitely adding enzymes. <laughs> um, sure, sure. But the, you know, small craft distiller who, you know, has 50 gallon fermentations going or whatever is like, oh, maybe. <laughs> I, I'm just curious because, I mean, the, the next question I was going to ask was just, you know, does, how does triticalate uh, behave when you're mashing and distilling it? Yeah. I mean, it behaves more like wheat. I haven't had as many issues with it as a lot of people describe having issues with rye. Um, <clears throat> yield wise, I've never had an issue with getting what I need out of it um, for conversion, alcohol percentage at the end of fermentation. So um, it's very on par with wheat as far as I've experienced. Um, but I'm sure, you know, there's varying... <laughs> interactions with that grain. Um, certainly this year we had some really intense fluctuations with our rye and found out that they were um, coming from different uh, suppliers and coming and uh, different varietals of rye. So the beginning of the year we were struggling to like get to similar alcohol uh, concentrations as what we had normally achieved. And uh, we tried literally everything. I mean, like everything we got, we sent it out for testing. We were trying different enzymes. We were doing, you know, all these different additions. I mean, like, but we just like, couldn't get it to where we wanted it to be. And then these past like two months, it's like way over what we have uh, been getting in the past and like way higher yields. So, I mean, the good news is like making up for some of the deficiencies that we had at the beginning of the year, but um, we finally got the COAs on the grain and we're kind of like talking about that. And um, it, it's just, it's so important, you know, if you are really looking at those numbers and like looking at what your efficiencies are to kind of know what your raw materials are offering you and how to treat them once they come into your space. Like right now we're doing single malt and the pHs are insane on our single malt as opposed to what they typically are for a bourbon or a rye. So we have to do a lot more massaging of pH to kind of get what we want out of it that way. Is it a too high? Too Way high? too low, super low. Too low? 
Way too yeah. Late. I mean, this is another area where I'm sure a lot of people would have something to say, <laughs> but, uh, but too low for what we are doing, I would say. <clears throat> okay. All right. So, so you end up having concerns about basically killing off the yeast, getting too, too acidic to kill off the yeast. Yeah, yeah. Too soon. I mean, at the end of fermentation, we're at like three pH and that's low. And so, um, I don't want to, yeah, that's very so low. you got to like start high <laughs> so that you've got yeah. a nice duration of fermentation going so you can actually complete it. Um, so. And, you know, red, at Redwood, you're doing a longer fermentation than normal. Anyway, you're doing close to seven day. That's right. Fermentation it is significantly longer than what I am familiar used to. And, um, I think that that will also change next year. <laughs> um, okay. I think that we just by a day, I think it'll probably be six or five day fermentations. It won't be three. We don't have the tank space to, um, to get that. And so I think it will probably be like about five day fermentation instead of seven days. With the, oh man, I'm just realizing the single malt at three, like the ramifications of that. That's, <laughs> but uh, so with the shorter fermentation, are you also uh, changing yeasts? No, I mean, we're pretty much close to dry at the end of those fermentations. It has a lot to do. I mean, the decisions that you're making are solely based off of what you want to do, right? There are physical limitations to your process. So like the tank flow, work hours, all of that stuff factor into in largely into what your process flow looks like. And so uh, we're going to be changing some of that stuff up uh, in, as well in order to kind of, uh, facilitate a, a larger production over the next year. Yeah. It's just yeah. fresh in my mind. Cause that's kind of what I've been working on. So <laughs> no, all good. I'm, I'm fascinated by these little nuances and the nerdy stuff. If it wasn't clear when we met, like, it's definitely clear now. Like I, I like asking about what the pH is. Cause that's, that makes a big difference. And I figure over a seven day fermentation process, even five or six, I mean, by the end of it, most of the yeast got to be dead by that point, just killing themselves off from, from starting to, from just the alcohol percentage. That's going yeah, I mean, most... to 10, 12% too. Yeah, most distilleries are using pretty robust yeast that is for higher alcohol concentrations, unless it's a distillery that's really focused on using beer varietals <clears throat> or mm. similar types of yeast strains, but there are certainly robust yeast strains out there and uh, yeah, a lot of distilleries use them, but I don't want to speak for them. I'm only speaking for us. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, the goal for us is to be at around no lower than 10% alcohol, but we are typically at around 11% alcohol after um, fermentation is complete. And almost dry, uh, almost dry for the bourbon and then slightly less for the rye typically. No, so not like gone, gone, but like pretty much that's what we can get out of it. <laughs> sure, sure. So <clears throat> I'm jumping around a little bit because there are a lot of different tangents and, and strands in the web here. Sure. So coming back to the um, aging and maturation process. So with the cult, the culture, the climate, the culture too, I guess, but the climate 
um, in NorCal, where you are, 30 minutes from the ocean. Uh, it's, as I said, it's very different from what you would get in a Texas, in a Kentucky, a Tennessee. Um, might be close to what you get in a central New York. Mm. Less, well, you probably have more humid. Yeah. You have more humid. We don't have humid. Oh, yeah. We have, we have, you have more humid. Yeah, we have a little more. <laughs> yeah. So, so I know. I was there. It's hot and humid there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you were there in the summer, though. You're the, like Brooklyn in the summer doesn't count. Like that's oh. midtown in the summer. I mean, is the whiskey not there in the summertime? I don't. <laughs> I mean, it is, but like we're talking central. I'm talking like you know Rochester and um, it, look, I'm a Long Islander, so we consider anything above New York City and Westchester to be upstate. Sure. Like it's ninety percent of the land of New York, but it's all upstate. But um. You know, I think of, of like a black button, Rochester, or something like that, who's, um, that's going to be very different from a Kings County, who's, who's right on the shore of New York distilling uh, over in, Re- in uh, Williamsburg. But, but so, anyway, the, uh, the <laughs> plus New York City in the summer, there's no getting around it. You're smelling a lot of garbage. So, <laughs> and that's literal. It gives off a lot of moisture. Very Is little. that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah let's that's that's a really nice way of putting it but yeah, yeah. Um, so so what what is your uh aging environment due to the barrels and to the whiskey that is is different from those other aging environments like the actual physical building <laughs> or you mean like well, the, the well like yeah like the, you know do you have a more stable temperature um less that's humidity okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we get pretty warm, but it's not like, uh, I mean the highest typical, we had one week this year that was in the hundreds. Uh, and then the rest of the time you're looking at like mid eighties for a summertime. So it's not that hot. And then in the winter time, it, uh, it's cold, but it's not freezing. You know what I mean? (laughs) It feels cold to me. I will say I went to school in the East Coast and I had only lived in California at the time and I brought a hoodie and a pair of Converse and I thought I was going to survive. I was going to school in Maine. I did not survive. I got the sickest I've ever been in my entire life. (laughs) I felt like I was going to die. Um, but luckily I think it's L.L. Bean. Everyone in Maine is going to kill me, but I'm pretty sure it's L.L. Bean that's coming out of there and they have a 24 hour store. And so I got to go to the 24 hour store and I got like my first down jacket and I was shocked that you could like be warm outside when it was snowing. I just assumed that you would be cold when there's snow outside. That's dumb. You don't have to be. (laughs) It's totally fine. My, uh, uh, I'm, I joke with a, a member of my family who's uh, from my wife's family, actually, also Long Islanders, moved out to California, went to school up in Massachusetts, but went out to California. And, you know, they come back here at 60 degrees here. It's a nice, mm-hmm. beautiful fall day. Chilly. And they've got a down jacket on. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they've got the puffy jacket on. I'm just looking at them. I'm, I'm sweating looking at you. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you? But uh, it's to each their own. I love the cold. So I'd much prefer to be in the cold than anything over 75 degrees. Yeah. So, um, 
It's, uh, so I'd say you, it's generally pretty consistent. It's the, they don't have like these crazy drastic differences in temperature over the, over the year. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not like below freezing and, you know, hundred percent humidity in the summertime. So we don't have quite as uh, drastic differentials uh, over the year as some of the other regions do, I think is kind of the biggest one not not as much humidity not as much you know heat and or cold um so you know overall it's just kind of like a softer steady consistent temperature relatively yeah none of our um <clears throat> like buildings that we're aging in have any insulation in them but you know it's not like they're hot boxes you know necessarily in the summertime <laughs> or that they are freezing in the winter time. So it's just kind of like slow and steady wins the race in this case. Someone also pointed out to me recently that if you get a warehouse that's that's big enough, I mean, you're, you're dealing with 14,000 barrels, which again, nothing at all to, to sneeze at. Like that's a significant inventory. Right. Um, you also have, some distilleries in Kentucky with, with the warehouse that has 55,000 barrels in a single warehouse. Right. And um, someone pointed out to me recently that that rickhouse can become its own microclimate because all of that liquid is both water and ethanol are absorbing the heat and acting as heat sinks and all that. And uh, I didn't quite get that until I visited Jack Daniels and the end of August. And uh, it was just, god awful outside yeah <laughs> but you walked into the rick house and it was like all right it's warm nice and cool it's nice and cool too and it smelled delicious and yeah it's just all that so um i know we are running short on time uh the the last question i wanted to ask you about was about about that single malt that you've got coming up oh yeah and that i i am a uh, huge american single malt fan um, huge single malt fan in general, but I've really been on an American single malt kick recently. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear more about that. Well, I have a question for you first. Uh, so you're a huge American single malt fan. What do you like? Uh, like brand wise? Yeah. Or so Either. Uh, my, it doesn't matter to me. My, I want to hear. So my, my favorite right now uh, is old line spirits out of Baltimore. Also mm -hmm. a big fan of Santa Fe spirits. Um, just think about other single malts. Uh, those are really my my top two. Yeah. At the moment, really enjoy the one Taconic just put out. It's uh, just two years old, so I think it's it's a really good starter. Maybe another year or two, we'll really kick it into the next gear. Um, but Old Line's cast strength, just their straight cast strength, is probably my top single malt of the year right now. Mm single malt American single malt oh such a category I have mixed feelings for um I think what did I say? um I this is a free you know you can yeah, say whatever you want on this open face I think American yeah. single malt is just emerging as a category right and so part of what that means is there really isn't a um 
like a single a flavor profile or expression that's generally accepted as this is what it should taste like. And there's a part of me that loves that because you get crazy variety. You just get like all across the spectrum, good, bad, pretty ugly, whatever. And there's a part of me that's like, I wish that there was a little bit more consistency because it's really hard to build, um, passion for that on a consumer base, if they really don't know what to expect, you know, everything is going to be a shock uh, or a surprise. And, um, I think that there's, there's a space for that, but I want there to be, I wish that there was just a little bit more consistency, um, so that people could get really behind it because I still think that a lot of people don't really know what American single malt is. I mean, the government doesn't really know what it is currently. I mean, we're fighting to try and get some definitions, um, built out into the standards of identities for spirits, of course. Um, but currently it's not there. And so there is no production restrictions, aging restrictions. There's no quote unquote definition of what it is, which leads to kind of that very wide spectrum of, uh, of production. And then of course, a finished product. So I am always very hesitant when I'm drinking American single malt, not because I don't want to drink it, but just because I try to come in with zero expectations, which is hard because I have my own vision about what American single malt should taste like. So I'm excited for it as like an emerging new category. And I'm, I'm really interested in what people are doing with it because it's very creative, it's different, and there's something very exciting about that. Um, but single, I mean, malted barley is not my favorite grain to work with, nor is it my favorite expression. Um, uh, that being said, we are going to be releasing a, a single malt probably next, the beginning of next year, um, you know, within the first six months. So first, uh, semester next year, we're going to be releasing our very first single malt and, uh, it 100% is going to be a blended a uh, single malt because we have some really interesting uh, malt makeups. I will say there's some very high chocolate malts that were made uh, that need to be uh, reined in, tempered back with some softer, uh, sweeter juice. And um, don't get me wrong, I, I love me some chocolate malt, but that stuff is baking chocolate, literally. Like you got to put some sugar in it to make it drinkable yeah. because it is bitter. <laughs> um but some people like that i just like things overall to be well balanced um and to have dynamic flavor to them so not um overwhelmed by just one area of uh expression so not just solely bitter not just solely sweet not just solely grain forward not just solely barrel forward i like it to have an element of each one of those and then kind of come together in uh, in sort of uh, a balance so i am excited actually about our single malt to come out because I think it will uh, lend strength to that category. I think it's going to be a good representation of what can be achieved with it. And um, so I am excited and, and people love talking about single malt, you know, <laughs> they just love it for whatever reason. I think probably traditionally it's cool. So they just want to talk about it. Um, but, uh, but I am, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited for what we've put together. The blend is pretty much done <clears throat> essentially. So it's just about getting, 
you know, the brand materials together, packaging materials together, and then um, strategy wise for release. But yeah, it's it's going to be the next thing that gets released out of uh, out of us for Redwood Empire for sure. Outside of the with cast all that blending, oh, yeah, of, of course, yeah. yeah. With all of those malts being blended, though, uh, will it still be one hundred percent barley? Yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's a 100% a fair question because it goes back to this definition of what this category is. So whenever I try somebody's single malt or American uh, single malt, I always ask them, okay, but like, what is that? that? That doesn't mean anything to me until you tell me to my face what it means slash what you've actually done with it, you know? Yeah. And, and with your, with your interest in, uh, any other grain, especially those unusual ones, you know, I had to ask, like, it's and I know. the way that you, the way that you started the question off, I was waiting for you to say, like, you know, some we're going to do a single malt, but <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be some malted wheat in there. It's like, you know, 95% malted barley, but like 4% malted wheat, 1% malted rye in there. Yeah. Um, and, is, and that's not yeah. to say I'm not interested in that. It's just, it's, so I was kind of expecting you to go that way, but I mean, if it was up to me, we would have gone that way. I think the industry is very much dedicated and advocating for hundred percent malted barley as being American single malt. I think if the TTB does, you know, put forward a standard of identity for single malt, it will include the fact it has to be hundred uh, percent malted barley. I do believe that. And so part of that was, um, was part of that in, um, impacted the decision-making for what our mash bills were going to be. The other part is Jeff loves malted barley. He started his kind of like career in beer and I didn't. <laughs> and so he is very passionate about malted barley, loves malted barley, loves single malt. So that's, what's kind of fun about having the two of us involved is like the things that I really love and do I'm allowed to do. And then the things that he really loves, uh, to be, um, to do and to interact with he gets to so we both kind of like come at it from our different angles so there is a very uh, attentive curator of our single malt out there it's and I'm not not that I'm just not the main one <laughs> I would say that's <laughs> that's I think that is a great place to end that off because that's that's a that is a distillation pun intended of like the personality like who you are behind a still so perfect way to end it. So Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to talk about Redwood Empire, uh, your own journey in spirits. Um, to, I will definitely be practicing that Japanese phrase. Can't promise yeah. anything, but I will try because I got to find, I have to find out where that 17 year old whiskey is from. It's driving me nuts. I know it's not <laughs> when you do <Yes>. it. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I'll record it and run it by you afterwards. Did I insult this person or ask the question? Um, but Again, thank you so much. Uh, we should tell people they'll be looking for the Bottled and Bond release, um, which uh, is it on shelves? Uh, it should be on shelves right? now. Yeah, it should be on shelves yeah. now. And then end of year, uh, well, the, the cask strength will be out. Yeah. So actually, there's this is our first cask strength release for the three Korskis. So we're doing a cask strength uh, pipe dream Um Emerald Giant and Lost Monarch. And um, I am really excited for them. I think that they're going to do very well and people will enjoy them. Um, but it's our very first. So I'm, I'm interested to see what the response will be. 
say anything about my response i loved them um so they'll be you know i'll be doing formal reviews of course just to keep everything on the up and up but um i really enjoyed them when i got to try them so i have a feeling other people will too and in the meantime make sure to visit you know redwood empire on the website uh, there'll be links to the website and all the socials in the show notes for this episode um, as well as links to the reviews and with that um hang on for me hang on with me for a second afterwards but thank you again for coming on my pleasure thank you so much (laughs) 